Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. No matter where you are, you can always take solace in a good book. Today we're taking a break from the news to talk about some great summer reads. I just finished reading Every Day is a Gift, the memoir of U.S. Senator and Iraq War veteran Tammy Duckworth. We want to hear from you. What books are you diving into this summer or hope to read while on vacation? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we'll talk to a librarian at the Connecticut State Library who will share some great children and young adult recommendations. And later, we'll hear from the director of the Connecticut Literary Festival. The pandemic caused it to be canceled in person last year, but it's on for 2021. We can't wait to hear more. First on Zoom with us is Roxanne Cody, owner and founder of R.J. Julia Booksellers in Madison and the Wesleyan R.J. Julia Bookstore in Middletown. Roxanne, welcome to our show. Well, thanks. Good morning, Lucy. Uh, you have been quite the voice in our state uh, with, uh, when we think about <laughs> when we think about uh, reading and, uh, and uh, boosting uh, the authors uh, that not only from our state from but ones that uh, people uh, really admire and so so many great events at your uh, bookstore in Madison over the years. But what has it been like uh, in the pandemic uh, to run an independent bookstore and still reach out to so many of your great patrons? You know, it's been an interesting lesson. Uh, you know, RJ Joya is, is 31 uh, years old. So we've seen a lot in 31 years. So when the pandemic first started, uh, the, the, the sentiment that sort of was overwhelming is unadulterated fear. <laughs> because not only did you worry about um, everybody you know's health and your own health, but I thought, oh my, oh my goodness, how are we going to keep, um, you know, 50 employees employed? How is RJ Julia going to survive this? So there were some scary, scary months, but the benefit of being around that long is we ended up with our booksellers being heroic about pivoting to do whatever our customers needed and our customers understood that they needed, if they were going to buy any books, they need to buy them from us and not, you know, that other uh, gorilla that exists in the mm. internet. And within that fear, Lucy, it was the most um, heart-filling, positive experience that you could imagine watching our staff um, wanting to do what would be good for RJ Julia, wanting to make sure that they were helping our readers and customers. And our customers were just there for us in the most astonishing way. So, you know, in that way that you often hear what happens in challenging times, 
within that challenge, we learned how well we could work together, how, how we could cheer each other up, authors stepped to the plate. We quickly figured out how to do events remotely. So as scary as it was, was as um, satisfying as it was, if that makes any sense. So you pivoted to web sales, had curbside, did a lot of online remote. We created a pickup window. <laughs> we designed and installed a pickup window on what we named Book Lovers um, Alley. So <laughs> Book Lovers <laughs> Lane. And so it was pretty. It was, it was kind of crazy, but it it all worked. And people were their reading accelerated and we're seeing their their reading continue um to be pretty hefty and voracious so what does it look like today how are your uh, book clubs going so our book clubs are going really well i think people are tiptoeing into um you know we have about eight or nine book clubs that meet in the store they're going to begin to start meeting in the store Book clubs, uh, some book clubs continued virtually. Um, and we're going to hold a book club soiree to get everybody back together and talk about the best book club books. And I think, you know, one of the things that Zoom taught us is yet it is almost oxymoronic. One is, wow, we're really happy to physically be together. But we also learned that we can be together in another way. So we're finding some family starting book clubs that, you know, you wouldn't have thought you could do because your sister's in San Francisco and you're in Hartford and somebody's in Dallas. So we're going to try to help a lot of those new book clubs that are, you know, forming and help them figure out how to get these remote book clubs going. You're hearing Roxanne Cody here on Where We Live. She's the owner and founder of R.J. Julia Booksellers, both in Madison and the Wesleyan R.J. Julia Bookstore in Middletown. As we talk about summer reading, we'd love to hear your recommendations. What are you reading this summer or as you get ready for vacation? 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Roxanne Ann tweeted at us that she just read Mrs. Everything by Jennifer Weiner. It's a great fictional account of the changes in women's choices in the U.S. over the last half of the 20th century, and it's told through the lens of two very different sisters. She highly recommends it. Recommends it. Uh, what what books do you recommend people pick up this summer? Uh, so I have a couple, and just so that you know, I think Jennifer Weiner is doing an event for R.J. Julia. Um, oh, awesome. So, yeah, we're really excited about that. So uh, I'm going to start with two of my um, most favorite fiction books that I think are perfect summer reads. And what I think makes books great summer reads are the minute you open the page, you want to live with those characters. You just want to be with them. You want to know what happens to them. You want to see if they make good decisions or bad decisions. So I'm going to start with The End of the Day by Bill Clegg. And Bill um has a home in Connecticut also. He's a writer and he's also a literary agent and he's the loveliest um, of men. And he knows how to how to write just a fantastic fiction book. And the end of the day opens with two women, one seemingly isolated uh, and sad and the other had been a very wealthy woman and seems deteriorated. 
And the book then goes backwards in time to understand their story. And one woman had been, you know, like the wealthy come in from New York City person. And the other person had been what is often referred to in these towns as a local. And they were inseparable until they were not. And what we learn is how secrets become corrosive, Mm -hmm. how we're shaped by things that we're unwilling to face up to or are afraid to disclose. And so we end up hearing the story of three women on very different journeys and how they make their way or not make their way. But I guarantee, Lucy, if you open the end of the day, you will not put it down till the end of the day <laughs> because <laughs> it, it, I just, I just made that up. I, I know that was a little cheap shot, but um, it, it's just glorious. It's glorious fiction, writing, straightforward story, great characters. And the other one that just, I can't get out of my head, is a book called The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. So Lucy, as you probably know from all the people you interview and all the talks that you go through, lots of people go through their lives with regrets. If only they had done this, if only they had fixed that. So this book opens with a woman in her 30s who once could have been a, a you know musician, once could have been an Olympic swimmer, once could have married a guy that um, they would open a pub. But everything goes wrong and then her cat dies. So she decides to commit suicide. But instead of finding herself um, having successfully killed herself, she finds herself in the midnight library with the librarian who had been her childhood librarian. And in this library are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books, with no titles on them. And each one represents a life that she could have had if her regret was unwound. And then she literally goes into that life. And if it turns out to be the life that she wished she had had, she could stay there. Mm. And if you think about this, as we, as we think about regrets, you know, we never, we never think of the road not traveled as going wrong. We only think about it as going right, right? We, We can't imagine it's not subject to real life. If I had married Joe, I'd be, you know, some rich, smart, fabulous woman in Kentucky, and you don't think about that Joe might have turned out to be an alcoholic and your life would have been a ruin. Um, And Matt Haig just does a wonderful job of, okay, go ahead and try that life. Let's see what you think. Sounds really interesting. Again, Midnight Library by Matt Haig, and then you also mentioned End of the Day by Bill Clegg. Do you find that you're drawn to fiction versus other genres, Roxanne? You know, I'm actually a big nonfiction um, uh, reader. One of the things that maybe I hadn't mentioned, so I do a podcast called Just the Right Book uh, that it interviews just nonfiction writers. And it's, you know, you can get it on Apple or Spotify or wherever. So I only do nonfiction for those. So probably half to 
60 or 70 percent of my reading is nonfiction. And one of the struggles I have with fiction is as such a big reader, sometimes I end up finding myself not as engaged. I think, oh, you know what? I've heard this story. So if a fiction book passes my 25 page test, then I'm hooked. I like that. Your 25 page test. We've talked about that on the show before is, uh, you know, when do we give up on a book? (laughs) Well, it used to be before I had the bookstore, I would absolutely never not finish a book. Never. I would always finish the book because what if the great part came near the end? But with so many books that I know about, like uh, there's no way I'm get, and it doesn't mean it's a bad book. It just means it's a bad book for me at that moment. It might even be I'll pick it up six months later, a year later or four years later, and it speaks to me differently. But I I just, you know, the number of books that I want to read at any one point is somewhere between 10 and 20. And therefore, I'm just too impatient to sit with something that I'm not loving to, you know, that other book keeps like seducing me and saying, oh, put that other guy down. Read me, read me. (laughs) I tell my producers that all the time. My nightstand is full of, I have several books going at once. And just like you, I read a lot of nonfiction uh, because I, you know, host this show, but I find that I'm drawn to fiction. Like if I'm going to go on vacation, I want a good engrossing read. It kind of takes me away from all of the news (laughs) that I focus on each and every day and the heaviness sometimes uh, in in the news biz. But what about some old favorites, uh, Roxanne? Uh, Do you find that you reread books? Well, you know, I don't. And sort of for the same reason. But the thing that draws me to the idea of rereading a book, um, I forget who said this. I I didn't make up this line because um, I I didn't make it up, but I think it's very smart. And that is when you reread a book, you are revisiting who you were when you read it. And you can add, you know, like when you hear a song that's from a time in your past or an event and, and it becomes evocative of that moment. I think the same thing happens with reading so that, um, you know, I'll give you an example. I read a book called Composing a Life by Mary uh, Bateson and Mary Bateson was Margaret Mead's daughter. And I, I read this book decades and decades ago. I, it, in my mind, it shaped how I thought of myself as a woman in my 30s or 40s. Well, I'm in my 70s now, and it's one of the few books I picked up, and I really couldn't tell what I loved about it mm. because it spoke to the 30-year younger than me. That's interesting. Uh, Tessa, our producer, she loves to reread books that she read when she was younger. And, and the one that she's rereading now is Holes. Uh, it's a young adult book. Uh, oh, I love that Twitter. book by Lewis Soccer, is it? That's right, right. Yeah. Uh, Holes again. Uh, Matt on Twitter writes uh, Spirit Run, he recommends, a 6,000 mile marathon through North America's Stolen Land uh, by No Alvarez. That sounds really interesting as well. But you mentioned because you read so much nonfiction, what are some nonfiction books out there that we should be picking up? 
So there's a couple that I'd love to make sure everyone knows about. Uh, one is The Biggest Bluff by Maria Konnikova. And I just interviewed her for the podcast, and it was an event at the bookstore also. And the name of the book is The Biggest Bluff, How to Pay Attention and Master Myself and Win. So Maria Konnikova is a psychologist, and she wanted to understand the intersection between skill and luck. And she decided that the best way to understand the intersection between skill and luck was to learn how to play Texas Hold'em poker. So Texas Hold'em poker, you've got two cards down, known only to you, three cards known to the community of players. And what she learned in trying to learn how to play poker and playing poker and actually becoming a national champion is that this game becomes a template for living your life and how much bluffing takes a role, how much your emotions uh, play a role in making good or bad decisions, how much you're really understanding the role of luck in your life, bad luck, good luck. And she talks about, she talked about these, this principle, which fascinated me, that based on some studies, most of us contribute our successes to our strengths and our failures to bad luck. And we consider other people's successes to be attributable to their good luck and their failures to be attributable to their failures, their you know, personal weaknesses. And you know, obviously that's not true, right? <laughs> None of that's true. So I you wouldn't think you could read a whole book, but you are, she's such a great storyteller that you read this almost as if it were fiction. Nice. So you said biggest bluff. Say the author name again. Uh, Maria Konnikova, K-O-N-N-I-K-O-V-A. And if you wanted to listen to the interview with her, you could, you know, listen to it on the podcast or at RJ Joya. And the other nonfiction book um, that I loved is called The Doctor's Blackwell, How Two Pioneering Sisters Brought Medicine to Women and Women to Medicine. So this is a story of two sisters and uh, one of them became the very first doctor in the female doctor in the United States in the 1800s. And first of all, when you realize that medical school in the 1800s was like two eight week programs and each eight week program duplicated the other one. I mean, it's, <laughs> and then you were a doctor. Um, but as you can imagine, the obstacles to a woman becoming a doctor were beyond anything you could imagine. And this woman's fortitude and intelligence and getting trained in Europe and trained in the United States and traveling and just going up against everything. And then the two of them created the first um, clinic for women in New York City. So uh, the author is Janice Nimura, N-I-M-U-R-A. And again, you know, what these great nonfiction writers do is weave tales that are stories. But I love what you end up learning. 
I love what you end up learning. One thing we love talking about on the show or talking to our Connecticut authors. And so, Ken, before you go, Roxanne, can you give us um, some Connecticut authors and books that we should be picking up? Yes, sure. So the other guy I just interviewed is Bob Ballard. Oh, nice. uh, Bob Ballard, who's written over (laughs) 20 books, uh, lives in Connecticut um, and is based in New London, wrote a memoir called Into the Deep a memoir from the man who found Titanic. And Bob Ballard, uh, I'm sure you know him, Lucy. Oh, yeah, he's on my list. (laughs) Yeah, so in this book, Bob does all of these things at once. One is he tells us a deeply personal story about discovering he's dyslexic at 62 and how he became the um, incredible... scientist and oceanographer that he is. And at the same time, we learn about how much resources the ocean, the ocean could end up solving both our energy and our food problems and climate change if we invested and understood all the Uh, resources and how they can be developed from the ocean. And then you get all the adventures of him discovering the Titanic, the PT-109, the Bismarck, the Lusitania, Phoenician sea routes. So he, you know, and he's about to turn 80 and his career, Lucy, is just so large and magnificent and filled with adventure and discovery that it almost seems like fiction. Mm. That sounds like a great book. I interviewed him years ago and uh, he's just remarkable. And the fact that he is a Connecticut resident is a plus. Uh, One more uh, from you, Roxanne. I understand Amy Bloom has a new book coming out. Yes. So Amy Bloom, um, uh, husband, uh, developed um, Alzheimer's. And uh, they may, I'm not giving away anything because you learn this right away. They made the uh, profound, difficult decision uh, for Brian uh, to go to Switzerland and uh, have an assisted suicide. Mm -hmm. And Amy has a book coming out next year And she's just, she's one of my favorite writers. She's just Mm -hmm. gifted and smart and extraordinary. And this book is called In Love, a memoir of love and loss by Amy Bloom. And it won't be out. I think it's out in early uh, 22. And I've read it. And I think that it will touch um, so many people uh, when they read the story. And it's you know, Amy's story from uh, another dimension. She has written novels. She has written short stories. uh, But this is quite a personal memoir, as you can imagine. Mm. Well, Roxanne Cody, it's been a pleasure to hear you on Where We Live, owner and founder of RJ Julia Booksellers in Madison, also in Middletown. So many great recommendations. And as you mentioned, you host Just the Right Book podcast. So something we can also listen to at the beach, Roxanne. Thank you. for Exactly. <laughs> or, or on the drive to the beach. <laughs> we love it. Thank you, Roxanne. We really Lucy, appreciate Lucy, thanks it. for having me on. I appreciate it. You have a good day.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to continue our Summer Reads show. We're going to hear from a young adult librarian with some recommendations for your kids. And then later, the Connecticut Literary Festival is on this year. We're going to talk about that. And we want to hear from you, too. What are you reading this summer? Join us, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're getting book recommendations for the summer, and we want to hear from you, too. What are you reading? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom is Kim Poe, children and young adult consultant with the Connecticut State Library. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. The Connecticut State Library is such a great resource uh, for so many of our residents uh, right on Capitol Ave in Hartford. But talk a little bit through uh, what you've been hearing from libraries across the state. Many have reopened. Are things back to normal uh, with hours and, and programs happening? Basically, basically. Um, so I work out of the Middletown Library Service Center in Middletown, Connecticut. So right near RJ Julia in Middletown, which you guys were talking about a bit before. And we work directly with um, librarians in the public sphere for the most part, but also um, some in the school systems. And yeah, um, libraries never really stopped when COVID happened. Um, there was a, a very obvious pivot, but there was lots of curbside service, um, online or phone in reference. Just about every library who had the capacity was issuing library cards online. Sometimes they'd uh, you know, email you your library card number or mail you something physically. Um, but yeah, people are opening, programs are happening. Um, the biggest difference is a lot of those programs are being held outdoors, particularly for children. Uh, it's not easy to get a three-year-old to social distance, especially if they're, uh, you know, with friends they haven't seen in a while. But uh, libraries are, are here. They are back in a capacity that we recognize them in. Um, and we're just kind of hoping it can stay that way. So we're here, we're in the middle of summer, and it's, there's also the Governor's Summer Reading Challenge. I know a lot of libraries uh, are promoting this. Can you talk about that, Kim? 
Yes, absolutely. So the Summer Governor's Reading Challenge, the Governor's Summer Reading Challenge, um, is hosted uh, by the um, Department of Education and the Connecticut State Library partners with them on that. Um, so what it is, is it's just sort of a way to um, encourage, um, nudge, kind of make an event out of um, getting kids and teens to read. So um, it typically operates out of the school systems. Um, kids go home with a summer reading list, which is my contribution in the Connecticut State Library's contribution. Um, the list goes through the school systems, the list goes to public libraries, um, and basically kids just read. Now the list is just a suggestion. No one is kind of locked into the titles that are there. We do kind of do what we can to make sure that there's something for everyone, um, a guiding light for parents to help sort of point them in a direction of what their kids could be reading. And at the end of the summer, um, someone from the school system could be the library, could be the um, principal, um, does a tally. How many kids um, participated in your school system? How many books did they read? Do a little bit of math and send that over to the Department of Education. And then uh, some schools are chosen as winners. And this year it was virtual, but normally what we would do is bring those schools, um, uh, typically um, librarians or principals and some students and parents, because who wouldn't want to see this, um, up to Hartford to meet the governor um, and kind of just get a congratulations from him. Um, there's photo ops, speeches, and it's a really great experience. This year was really cute. It was virtual, so there were some classrooms that were tuning in through Zoom. Um, the governor read Goodnight Moon. Um, you know, we missed that in-person feel, but it was really nice to, to acknowledge it in some way, shape, or form. Now, Kim, you mentioned that there are lists where there are books that are recommended depending on the grade level. I know that uh, my kids at home, we've got this uh, chart from our library, uh, the theme Tales and Tales. Can you talk about that and give us some ideas? Of what were some of your favorite books on these lists? Yes, so this year's theme is Tales and Tales, like an animal tale and, and the tale of a book. Um, and we, I had a blast making this. There are five lists. K to two, three to four, five to six, seven to eight, and nine to 12. So it takes quite a bit of time. Um, but some of my favorites from the list um, are from our picture book category, Bird Hugs. It's really adorable about a bird whose wings are too long for him to actually use them to fly, but they're perfect for hugs. Um, we had some really other great books that might not fall within the theme of Tales and Tales are too great not to suggest to kids when they finally have the opportunity to read. For some of our older ones, um, there is a, a five to six, fifth to sixth grade book, Becoming Muhammad Ali, written by James Patterson and Kwame Alexander. And it's just too good not to um, suggest. It's about um, Muhammad Ali as a child and how he became to be um, the massive icon that you know everyone knows him as today. Um, another one of my favorites, who I was actually able to email and meet via Zoom um, for an event uh, held um, called Nerd Camp, is um, Kwame Mbalia, Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky. It's a book um, about um, Black folklore. So a kid um, accidentally punches a hole in the sky as the, actually I think it's a tree and he falls through the sky, um, and he meets these um 
folk heroes that he and a friend of his who recently passed have only read about, um, Anansi the Spider, Hi John, um, and he has caused all of these problems by punching a hole in their sky and letting in something evil that they didn't want there. So now he has to work with all of them to, um, you know, combat that and, and fix the problem that he's caused. And um, excitingly enough, the sequel was recently released, and I haven't read it yet, but it is on my list. You're hearing Kim Poe here on Where We Live. She's a children and young adult consultant with the Connecticut State Library. We'd love to hear from you, too. Uh, what books are your children uh, reading this summer? 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Jason tweeted that his mom wrote a children's book. It was a really big deal for her to complete it. Of course, they're very proud of her. It's called The Robot lesson. So uh, congratulations to Jason and his mom uh, for that publication. Now, are there a couple of new releases that you want to talk about, Kim, that you're really excited about? There are. I, um, I'm lucky enough that I'm able to get a sneak peek and read advanced copies of quite a few books. So there's one, and she's actually a Connecticut author. I am reading it right now. Um, I read it quite a bit on the plane that I was on yesterday, visiting um, in California with some family. The book is called Mercury Boys by Chandra Prasad. Um, and another thing about those lists that we have, every list has four featured Connecticut authors on them, just so we can we can shout out our own local literary heroes. Chandra Prasad's book hasn't actually come out yet, so I'm giving everyone a sneak peek, but it's called Mercury Boys, and it's about a girl who accidentally finds out that if she, and please don't do this anyone, if she plays with Mercury, again, don't play with Mercury, but if she plays with Mercury and then touches this old photo um, that she found in the Western Connecticut State Library, um, basement collection somewhere I used to work in, in uh, college that she actually travels through time um, to this man in this photo and um, can talk with them and interact with them and they become friends. She kind of lets the secret slip um, to some other friends of hers and they all find their own Mercury boys. So I'm about a third of the way through the book and it's it's fantastic. Mm. I would have finished it if I wasn't so tired. Lovely. And Chandra Prasad has come on where we live. So we're so excited to hear about this upcoming young adult novel. Again, Mercury Boys. Uh, and there, isn't there another one that's an adult book? There's a lot of crossover. Can you talk about, is it House in the Cerulean Sea? Uh, the House in the Cerulean Sea, my favorite. That book was suggested to me by not one, but two friends of mine. I was having a rough week. Um, the House in the Cerulean Sea is by P.J. Clune, and it's a book about a guy who um, is almost like a caseworker, and there are these orphanages set up for um, kids with special abilities. Sometimes they can do something. Sometimes they might just have, like, a lizard tail for no reason, and he goes to orphanage upon orphanage just to kind of check in on the kids, how things are going, and he reports back to extremely upper management. Um, and one day, uh, extremely upper management uh, calls him in and they give him a new assignment and they tell him that he can't open uh, the envelopes. He can't know anything about the assignment until he actually gets to the location where he needs to be. Um, now, this main character, he's very um, stoic. 
he's very uh if you looked up the term blah he would kind of be the, the picture that came up next <laughs> to that um and where he is like it always rains you know like it's not it's not super great um but he gets to this like beautiful island he has never seen the ocean before and there's this house that's on an island in the in this see and um, that's where he's supposed to go to evaluate the the kids and their caretaker and he opens up the um the envelope and he sees that uh the, the first kid is a boy named lucy and he's like oh what a what a weird name for a boy but okay let's keep reading and lucy <laughs> is apparently short for lucifer so one of the kids um you know with the special ability is actually like the child of satan um and other kids on that island are just kind of <laughs> they've been identified as the quote unquote dangerous ones so that's why they've been um you know isolated there's a female gnome which confuses everyone because there's never been a female gnome before i guess they all pop up out of the dirt um there's kind of like what you what i'd picture like a bigger version of flubber like he doesn't have a body he doesn't have any eyes but it's really sweet because he just wants to be a bellhop he he loves bellhops he loves helping people and that's kind of what this main character figures out is that all of these children that have been designated as dangerous and scary and they have to be kept on this island in the sea are children you know everyone's afraid of lucy um but he's like six years old and he he loves to bake cinnamon rolls and you know he likes to to play jokes and he you know he likes to kind of use his title to scare the, the grown-ups around him but at the end of the day he and all of these kids are children and what he realizes that extremely upper management is hoping that he'll come back with a bad report to shut down this orphanage and separate these children when they found the only family that they've ever had, um, it starts to change his perspective. He starts to kind of go from being blah to really being invested in them and who they are and the future. And, um, you know, he there's a little romance brewing between him and, and the caretaker there as well. So it's a fantastic book. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, you sold me on it. I'm just going to have to check it out now from my library. <laughs> House in the Cerulean Sea, a uh, wonderful uh, uh, summary of that uh, book, uh, Kim. I want to thank you for joining us here on Where We Live. Again, uh, Kim Poe is children and young adult consultant with the Connecticut State Library and a lot more great recommendations for us. We thank you for your time today, Kim. Thank you for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the Connecticut Literary Festival. It's happening in a few short months. Stay with us. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, restaurants scrambled to stay afloat during COVID with creative solutions like dining areas and empty parking spaces. Now, even with widespread vaccination, residents' interest in outdoor dining hasn't slowed down, and our streets feel more lively because of it. On the next Where We Live, we'll take a look at the way our street culture has changed. Could some of these innovations be here to stay? That conversation tomorrow. Now, the Connecticut Literary Festival is happening in a few short months. It's put on by the students and staff at Central Connecticut State University. And in the fall, the festival takes over all five galleries at Real Artways in Hartford, where there's programming and prose and an interactive 
Typewriter Gallery. To tell us more on Zoom with us, Jotham Borello, Director of Connecticut Literary Festival. He's a writer and professor at Central Connecticut State University. Jotham, welcome to where we live. Oh, it's great to be here. It's so fun to hear everyone talk about books and get so <laughs> animated. It's, it's been a That's great right. There's so much enthusiasm. Now, I understand that the literary festivals described as a literary carnival all under one roof. So when did it start, Jotham? Yeah, back in uh, 2018, I got the support of um, the administration at Central and then uh, began to mentor the students. So we had our first on-ground festival pre-COVID in 2019 at Real Artways that wonderful gallery and cinema space. We had about 800 people that first year. Um, and then what the pandemic did, and a lot of literary organizations, we all went online, right? And so we started a series of lit talks. We had about 14 of them. And then we also started something called the Connecticut Literary Anthology, Lucy. So we started publishing books. So the pandemic kind of forced us to be a year-round enterprise. And the first book came out in 2020. It had about 35 Connecticut writers. And I'm presently editing with the students our second anthology. We have 40 CT writers in the new book, including the poet laureate of the state, Margaret Gibson, and some high school students. And then that book will be published on the eve on October 22nd. We're going to have a huge book party, and we're going to host the Connecticut Book Awards this year at the festival. And then the on-ground festival will be on the 23rd at Real Artways. And it will have that literary carnival feel um, once again in the galleries of Real Artways. So we need to put that on our calendars happening yes. in October. I mentioned that you're a writer. Was this pandemic year a big year for writing? What have you heard from you and your peers? I, you know, I got an email from a friend at 4.30 in the morning the other day, <laughs> um, and uh, she's been writing a lot. I think a lot of them have. Um, I, I host a writing conference down at Yale, which is finished, and we had more submissions of writers from just, we did it virtually from all over the world. There was such enthusiasm to tell stories. So I think a lot of people are writing. Um, and I'm gonna be really interested maybe in a year from now, kind of how the pandemic and what is happening in our culture will kind of shape literature in the coming years. You know, a book takes about 18 months once it's accepted to publish. So I think as we saw with the 9-11 books that came out in the you know, 2004, I mean, after those years, I think the same thing will happen with this time, and I'm really eager to hear it. I know I'm working on a new project, and I'm kind of forecasting the future based on <laughs> what we live through now, and I think it will change publishing and the books we read in the future. You're hearing on Zoom with us, Jotham Borello, again, Director of Connecticut Literary Festival. Jotham, we've got to ask you for your recommendations. i got to start with uh, The Other Black Girl. Tell us about this by a Connecticut author. Yeah, it's a book. I, I'm just getting into it. Uh, Zakia uh, Delia Harris. Um, it's getting a lot of press. Uh, she worked in publishing. She's a Connecticut native. Uh, she worked in publishing, so she's created this kind of fictional um, publishing house where uh, her character is the the only black girl, and then they hire uh, the, the new black girls, the title is. And then the book kind of takes, I, I'm not that far into it, um, and the book kind of takes kind of a... Um, uh, kind of a horror, kind of speculative angle in the end. It's getting great reviews. It was just reviewed in the New York Times. So um, right. good things. Any bookstore you go into, I was one yesterday, it's there. So you can pick up that anywhere, The Other Black Girl, um, anywhere you go. All right, and we'll make sure to tweet that out as well. Uh, let's talk about some of your other uh, recommendations. Are you like me, where you've got several books going at once, Jotham? <laughs> you should see my decks, Lucy. I, I, as I was listening, I was walking around my little library, picking up other books. There's so many. 
and we're you know always getting authors. We're gonna have about sixty authors at the festival, so I've been looking at a lot of books, and people send me a lot of books. Uh, one book I'm real excited about. Um, it's an anthology. We haven't talked about anthologies yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called uh, Natampella Familias, and it's an anthology of Mexican American literature of families between worlds. It has received stellar reviews. It came out in April, and it's edited by Sergio Troncoso, who has a house in Kent, Connecticut. Um, and the book contains stories and poems uh, that explore kind of living between Spanish and English and between Mexican and American. And on their own, the books, the stories and poems um, are terrific. But T- Troncoso, in the introduction, he writes about the, the Mexican-American experience of living between two worlds has been and will be forever essential and important. But he also talks about the book as a bridge for those who are not Mexican-Americans and understand another community as well as to understand themselves, kind of an imbalancing of these points of self. And the concept of being in between, it really is a universal theme, I think, Lucy, and it's been maybe thinking about today, how we all cross borders. You know, we're all between worlds today. You could say politically, of course, culturally, racially, gender, families and religion. Um, And you try to always kind of, we always talk about being one nation, but we're really trying to balance these demands. I mean, one that's obvious maybe is just like, Right now, we're talking about the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. How do we balance all this? So that's an anthology. Um, and it just so happens that tonight I'm moderating a discussion with Sergio at the Trent Public, Kent Public Library at 630. So if anyone's in the western part of the state, it's a free event. Uh, Kim was just mentioning Kim, free events coming back and literary events. So 630 tonight at the Kent Public Library. Mm, that's uh, wonderful. You said West in western Connecticut. Western Kent. Kent. Kent is right on the, I think, on the New York border, Kent, the Kent Public yep. Library. Beautiful town. <laughs> yeah, Thank that's you, what Roger. I've never been, so I'm about to jump in the car and drive across the state to find it. Uh, uh, we've been asking mention, our... Go ahead, yeah, I, I want to mention two story collections, if I can. Um, we haven't talked about short stories, um, and I think there's a lot of books that are kind of COVID books, I call them. I think my novel is one of these. You know, we were, you, you plan a book forever, it's published... And then COVID hits and you can't do any live events. So a lot of writers got caught in this. And two Connecticut writers, uh, uh, there's a book called Furthest South by uh, Evan uh, Ethan Rutherford, excuse me. And the title story, there's a lot of whimsy in it. The title story is about a grandfather and his companion, which is a talking empire penguin named Franklin. And they're on a ship to the South Pole with 25, quote, little blonde Norsemen, little kids. And of course, the, their trip goes south excuse the pun, as in fiction, right? <laughs> Bad things happen to good people. Um, so that is Further South by, uh, I th- uh, can't even pronounce his name, by Rutherford. And the other one I really like, it's called Animal Wife by uh, Laura Orlich. Um, and it also has what Rutherford has. It's kind of joys and surprises and the fantastic. In the title story, um, a swan wants to shed uh, her fur or her feathers um, in sit by a fire so she longs to be human so one day her swan sisters allow her to strip her feather robe and of course it is taken by a man who makes her his wife and she gets more than she uh, bargained for so that's another great book animal wife so story collections just don't get enough love i find lucy and uh, we need Mm -hmm. to love them too you mentioned anthologies earlier and part of the literary festivals you'll be putting out a new one yeah we're going to have a book with 40 writers um and we're going to actually also kind of let them tour around the state. So we're going to try to get them out and reading from the book. Um, it's a handsome little book. It'll be available in bookstores. I know Roxanne sells them um, at the store. We had over 400 submissions that we went through all spring. 
Um, so it was a lot of tough choices uh, to narrow it down. We'll have about 40 pieces mm -hmm. at the end. Well, it's great to hear from you, Jotham Borello, again, director of Connecticut Literary Festival. So glad to hear events coming back online, uh, the excitement of being together and also experiencing and hearing uh, from so many creative people, even in our state. I know you can get more information at ConnecticutLiteraryFestival.org. Uh, what a great lineup. Jotham, maybe I'll see you this fall. I, I hope you've come, Lucy. Everyone, it's a free event. It's public uh the CT Manis and the state supporters. So it's free for everyone. Please join us. Thank you very much. We've heard from uh, listeners uh, on Twitter today. Molly writes a uh, new book, Housebreaking, from Middletown native Colleen Hubbard, coming out next spring. So that's another one to keep an eye on. Again, uh, Jotham Borello is a director of the Connecticut Literary Festival and a writer and professor at Central Connecticut State University. We'll try to put out some more links to all of the great book recommendations we heard on today's show. You can also follow us on Twitter at Where We Live. That's uh, probably the easiest way uh, to look up some of the, these great book titles that we've heard from our guests today. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tess Terrible produced today's show. Uh, with us also is Kat Pastor, our technical producer. We'll be back tomorrow. We hope you join us. <laughs>